Outdoor Adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. Simply pour a can in your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. Pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. Hey guys, it's Steve on my phone in Hawaii, where it happens to be turkey season. And it is right now turkey week here at Meat Eater, which means tons of great turkey hunting content. A lot of great offers on turkey gear at TheMeatEater.com and even a calling contest where I am getting my ass thoroughly kicked. Go find it all at TheMeatEater.com. Welcome back to Cutting the Distance. Today's guest comes to us with a bunch of data, research, and information on elk, their biology, and their behavior. I want to see how we may be able to take this information and use it to our benefit during hunting season, see what makes sense, what relates, what doesn't, um, and what you're seeing out there. So Brock McMillan comes to us with a PhD in biology. He was a professor, uh, professor of ecology at Minnesota State University for nine years prior to joining The faculty is wildlife ecologist at BYU for the past 15 years. Uh, In addition to all of his professional experience, he is also an archery elk hunter, which I'm most excited about because uh, we we get to jump in and talk about some of the things that I've observed um, and if they have a biological reasoning as well as what he's observed and maybe how they relate, how they're different. I also hope to dive into some of the research and see if it sheds a little light on why and how come um, those questions that I ask myself every September, and, and I find myself trying to answer those every fall. So welcome to the show, Brock. Uh, thank you very much, Jason. Uh, appreciate having you here. I know you guys are just like everywhere across the West. Um, you're in the thick of a calving season. Uh, how's that going for you there in Utah? Uh, it's going great. We're right dead center. So yesterday we we collared our middle calf, meaning that half of our elk that we have collared have given birth and half are still waiting to give birth and so yesterday was the dead center day gotcha and and that relates to timing which we're definitely going to jump into here in a little bit you know timing of the rut and how that affects you know drop dates and and whatnot i know you know being from washington we're up a little bit further north i know they're just kind of i think they're maybe a little bit on the front end and so we'll talk a little bit about that and how latitude may affect that may not affect it in your opinion um i'm actually going to go over to eastern washington and help capture calves um here next week and then interview their biologist so um, yeah it's it's that time of year um really thankful to have you here um, you bet so like every podcast we're going to start with some listener questions and for this episode i went to is it september yet um it's a facebook group a bunch of diehard archiel hunters they live for that month of september so i'm excited to bring some of their questions to you here brock and uh, the first one that we got from um dan scalis um, from the from the Is It September Yet group. In your opinion, how does the moon phase affect the rut and the elk behavior? You know, there's a lot of built up. I'm going to I'm gonna elaborate on that. There's a lot of talk about, you know, taking your vacation around moon phases or taking it, you know, just on the backside of a full moon. In your opinion, or not even your opinion, what does the science or research say about full moon and how it affects the rut? Jason, I would love to be able to answer that question. Um, 
I don't know. And that's a bad answer. But we we have activity data that right now from we've actually GPS collared about 1,700 elk. And so we know movement behavior for all of those animals. And we're just analyzing right now the effect of time of day, season, moon phase. So I don't have a complete answer for that, but undoubtedly it has some effect. Uh, yeah. Um, I'm going to roll a little bit of my information, uh, a little background on myself, Brock, you know, being an engineer, I'm very data driven. Um, that's why I like talking to biologists. Cause it's like the data is what the data is. You can read it and interpolate it however you want. But, um, one year we set out a, a trail camera on a one month cycle. We set out on October 1st and we picked it up on September 1st. We then went through and categorized every picture we got of bulls time of day and what it related to the moon phase. Um, and all we saw was a slight shift in timing. Um, when the moon was out, we would see those animals coming out a little bit later if the moon wasn't. Um, and, and it didn't really seem to have an effect as much as you would think. It was just a slight a slight movement in time. Now, that's you know unscientific. It's just me looking at one trail camera in one location. But we, we did see you know the moon, whether it relates to the brightness or their visibility. We did see things you know leave earlier and come out later, I guess. Um, you know, it, it waters, and this was at a water source. So I, I guess we need to, to preface that. Um, as well as I also went back and looked at, you know, 15 or 20 of my bull kills that I could remember days and times and whatnot. And one thing that was actually, um, contrary to what you hear, you know, a lot of what's said is, you know, following a full moon is the best time to hunt, you know, off of a full moon going into, to a no moon, um, is, is your best time to hunt. I'd actually killed the majority. I think 14 out of 20 of those bulls were leading up to a full moon within that week of the full moon. And so not that it, it's good data, it, at least in my, you know, circumstances, it didn't seem to matter that much. Right, Jason. So, well, the literature is the, the evidence that is in the literature suggests that photo period is what drives the hormone cycles on both male and female elk. And so there can be an effective moon phase and I hope, and we hope to be able to determine if there is an effective moon phase, but the primary driver is photo period. So as days yep. are shortening, testosterone levels are increasing in the bulls and the follicle stimulating hormone in, in the females is, is leading them into estrus. Okay. Yeah. I, I, we're going to jump into that pretty heavy here in a little bit. So we'll, we'll talk about photo period, but yeah, I, this, this is really, it's not non-scientific, but I get asked a lot of times, if you only could take one week of vacation, when would you, you hunt? And it's, it's really what you're looking at the hunt, whether you want kind of that pre-red action, whether you want to be in the middle of the bugling, whether you want to be on the post, but there's only so many days in September. So in my position where I can hunt a lot, I'm just hunting regardless of the moon phase. Um, but I, I don't, and this is all opinion based. I don't think it matters as much as we, we like to think. Um, but, but it's real, you know, it's just based on my experience. Um, when they're running, they're running Jason. So I, yep. I think that you're probably right there. Yep. Okay. Our second question comes in from Thor Monday, uh, Thor Monday, excuse me. Also from, is it September yet during a colon, you have a bull all riled up. And the next thing that bull rounds up his cows and leaves. Um, is there, is there biology involved there? We're going to get deep into to calling elk here in a little bit, but I wanted to, to throw this question up front. Um, 
Yeah, and, and I guess there there may not be enough information. You know, winding. Did you get too close, or did that bull feel threatened? But but can you explain that that scenario um, out in the field and and what you think may be going through that bull's head that was was involved in the call in and willing to communicate with you, and then all of a sudden stops the communication. I I don't have an, a biological explanation for that. I've had that exact same experience several times, and maybe Jason, you're a better caller than I am, but my guess is you've had that situation as well. Um, I think every bull has a different personality and actually there's been some personality work done lately. And, and that's true. They have different personalities. Some are much more likely to take risks than others. Um, so I think, I think that I, I don't know if you can get too close if they don't smell you, my experience, and I don't know, Jason, you be different. I go in hard until I get pretty close, and then I try to be quiet because elk are noisy. Yep. You know that in the woods. There's no reason yep. to be timid getting close. Yeah. No, I, I, I'm i in that same boat. I feel, you know, number one, they don't smell you. Number two, you know, you obviously don't want to let them see you. It's secondary, but it's not as it's not as important as as being scented, but I'm the same way. As long as you're not going to get picked off, getting as close as possible has always been my game plan. If vegetation and terrain allow it, um, I'm going to, I'm going to get real, real tight because we all know, and, and maybe to elaborate on that question, um, why he rounds his bull or why that bull rounds his cows up and leaves. It's, it's that, it's that threat, uh, of losing, losing his cows. You know, the, these, these bulls are out there with the, the sole purpose to live and then recreate, you know, and, and, um, they've got their for sure thing. If a bull starts to put pressure on them or you do get too close and his personality is such that he'd rather retain his cows and not risk fighting a, a new bull that showed up for him. Of course, he's going to go the other way. And, and we talked about it on this podcast before, and I've talked about it in some of my calling strategy is this is why I, I sometimes start with different levels of threat. Like would a cow call have necessarily forced him to leave right away or, you know, and, and don't get me wrong. I'm, I'm a heavy bugler, but, um, you know, it, it's, it's sometimes tough to figure out why that bull just, just rounds up and leaves at a certain point during the call in. Um, and, we, we may not know. And it might change during the rut because, you know, bulls may lose 30% of their body mass. They may, may be losing, uh, three, 300 pounds during the rut when they're not eating and they're fighting all the time. So early in the rut, the dominant bull's there and he's saying, I'm willing to fight anybody. But 10 days later, he may say, I'm out of energy and I'm going to avoid any conflict that I can. Yep. Yeah. It's, it, it's a lot less energy expended to round his cows up and leave versus dealing with a, you know, an, another mature bull. Um, Okay, this one, and, and I, I apologize ahead of time, Brock. These were the four questions I pulled as user questions, so I didn't let you, you know, kind of review them. Um, and I don't know if you'll have an answer or not, but does so in the in the West we deal in elk country we deal with a lot of fire conditions, especially into September and especially as of late. And is there any indication that smoky air, poor air quality affects the rutting bulls at all, or is it strictly based on photo period? Uh, I. I, I don't think anybody studied that, but I can't imagine there's an effect. Okay. Yeah. I'm, I'm in that same boat aside from the effect it has on me trying to breathe and, you know, get around a little bit. Um, right. yeah. Okay. And that was from Marshall uh, Byron there on, is it September yet? And then, um, you may have some insight to this one. This is a little more technical question. Um, comes from Michael Cummings, um, from, is it September yet? What does the science say about shooting bulls versus cows for the health of the herd? And I'm going to elaborate on this question a little bit. 
is sometimes you see areas where herds are, are really, uh, I would say, performing poorly in an area or they're, they're not meeting objectives. And then you get frustrated with the Fish and Wildlife Commission or the, you know, whoever it may be that we're, dang it, we're, we're given two bull tags out, but yet we still have 50 cow tags in the unit. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to ask that from a hunter's perspective. What does, what does, in your opinion, taking cows versus bulls, because, uh, and how does that negatively or in a, you know, uh, adversely affect it or does it in your opinion? So I hope this is something we get into because I think this is a really complex question. Um, if you're a rancher, a cattle rancher, you don't want any bulls in your herd because every bull you put in the herd is is a lack of food for another cow to produce a calf. And I think it's generally the same for elk. Um, you don't need very many bulls in the herd to service all the cows and to service them during their estrus. I hear all the time, well, if you don't have enough, they go into a second estrus. We have no evidence of that whatsoever. Zero. And so, um, and so the more bulls that you remove from the herd, the more productive the herd's going to be. Now, there's less bulls to see when you're hunting if you do that, but the herd as a whole will be more productive. The other kicker is, Jason, and this is a big one for us in Utah, is as a population ages, say, for example, you are not removing cows and the average age of the cow increases, the likelihood that that cow becomes pregnant goes down with age. And so as a herd ages as a whole, the productivity of that herd goes down regardless of how many are on the landscape. Uh, so there's a whole bunch of factors. If we have too many mouths on the landscape, production is going to go down because nutrition drives whether, an, whether a cow goes into estrus or not. If she's not fat enough, she doesn't even go into estrus. And, and so pregnancy rates will be low. Same thing, if the herd's getting old, Pregnancy rate will be low and the, the herd just won't be as productive as it was during the growth phase for that herd. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And we're going to jump into herd dynamics and a little bit bull to cow ratio and some of that. And I've got I've got a lot more questions we can expand on this, like, well, what's a good management tool to make sure you're only taking those those older cows or how do you determine that? So I've got some questions from a hunter's perspective, like and a game manager's perspective, like how do you even manage that right. for the optimal herd health? But we'll we'll jump into that. Um, so no, I appreciate you answering that question. And I'll kind of wrap up our, our listener questions today, Brock. And once again, if you have questions of your own, you'd like me or my guests, um, the experts to, to try to answer, feel free to email us at ctd at phelpsgamecalls.com or reach out to us on social um, and and give us your questions and we'll try to include them here. So can't thank the guys over at the Is It September Yet um, page enough for, for filling us up with some questions. And the ones I didn't get to were for sure going to get to in my conversation. So um, next up, we're going to jump into to my discussion here, Brock. Excellent. So, uh, I'm all, like I mentioned earlier, I'm excited when I get to talk to biologists, researchers, scientists, people that have hard data, um, to look at when, and, and um, you know, I, I would say I go out there as a guy that just learned by trial and error. Um, this works, this doesn't work. 
maybe I have an opinion why or why it doesn't, but there's no data, right? Besides it happening multiple times or not. And so very excited to talk to you today, Brock, and, and kind of run some scenarios, questions, issues, whatever it may be by you to see if, you know, what the, what the science supports. I know we had a, a great conversation a week ago and I got excited about some of the things you had talked about, about like cows coming into estrus, why you, you know, adjacent units are doing good and bad. So really excited to jump in here. Um, so I'm going to I'm going to break this all the way down to the foundation and I don't feel that any of this is below elk hunters but let's start with the elk rut in general. Um I want to build this whole conversation off that foundation. Can you just go into the generalities of the elk rut as far as timing um you know bulls going to cows, cows going to bulls like as far as the bulls run the herd for that amount of time or do the lead cows run the run the herd? Like just give us a a five minute snapshot of the elk rut and what's taking place. So I, I think the elk, elk rut is dictate. I'm sorry, is dictated by partrition is get dictated by birth. So what's driving when the rut is, is that that calf has maximum nutrition when it has maximum need. And so uh, the female, the maximum energetic requirement is just prior to weaning that calf. So the female gives birth like right now, the 1st of June, uh, and for the next three or four or sometimes six or seven months, she's nursing that young, although she starts to wean in two to three months. So she needs maximum food on the ground in two to three months from right now to help that calf grow as much as possible. And so that dictates when the calf is born and that's the evolutionary force is going to drive that date. And then gestation is 240 to 250 days. And so the rut has to happen 240 to 250 days before that date for everything to be optimal. And so I think that's what's driving when the rut happens. So if today, which it is the peak of partrition on the unit we're studying right now, uh, were the peak partrition then like the 24th of September should have been the peak of rut this last year. Do you feel that those, those 240 days, is that variable amongst units or is it kind of pre-programmed, like you said, into that evolutionary um, data or is it 250 days for a certain unit and 230 days for a different unit? That, that's a great question. All we know about the gestation is from captive elk. And what we know in captive elk is gestation can vary from about 240 to 262 days. Uh, I don't think there's near that much variation. Those are the extremes. I yeah. think that in general, it varies from 245 to 250 days. And and like humans, it's not everybody is exactly nine months. Some come a couple days shorter, some go a couple days longer. Uh, in my case, a week longer and I was 11 pounds that kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so let me, I don't want to, to misinterpret your, your numbers, but you're saying that it's a fairly tight range. Cause if you're saying only 22 days is, is the extreme ranges of the envelope, does that mean all these elk or all these cows are being bred within a very, very short time window or I mean, cause we've all been out there. Right. And so we've heard bulls beagling, you know, end of August, all the way to the beginning of October, larger herds seem to take longer. Are those all, is that red activity happening outside of the breeding or, or is it, 
are those like anomalies or, or outliers why that bull stays, you know, kind of active and those cows are entering estrus those kind of off times outside of that 22 day window you kind of just mentioned? So, so, so the 22 day window is the gestation. So that doesn't, dictate, oh, oh, gotcha, gotcha. Yeah. That, that doesn't dictate how long the rut is because it, we don't have hard data yet, but what we think is happening is a cow has to reach a certain condition level before she can go into estrus. And so healthy, healthy fat cows come into estrus earlier than poor condition cows. If the poor condition cow comes into estrus at all. Um, and so we had our first birth, Jason, nine days ago now, and we're already in the middle but my guess is that parturition or birthing will tell all the way towards the end of June. Um, and so, yeah, the, absolutely. The rut may start nine days before September 24th, start going really good. So we're sitting at, at about September 15th for these units here. Yep. And, and the, the majority of all the animals are going to be bred by October 5th. But there are some that were poor condition that are still trying to get to sufficient condition to go into estrus. And so it may lag, the rut may lag all the way into the middle or even to the end of October for those few straggler cows that are still trying to get enough fat on their bones. So I'm just trying to reduce this data to, to areas I've hunted. So if, if you're in, let's say, a a unit that doesn't have necessarily the best wintering ground. And so those cows go back into spring and summer in poor condition. Is that where you may see that rut going longer just because they're, it's taken them a little bit more or their health isn't as good. And so you may see that rut go longer in those more mountainous units versus if you're in a low lying unit that has easy winters, you may see them all come in, like you said, middle of September and, and hit all at the same time where you get, you know, a high percentage of your cows all at once versus, you know, different levels or, or a spread out array of health? So that's a great question. And I don't know 100% the answer. If I draw on deer data so that they're a little different than elk, summer habitat is way more important than winter habitat. And I think it's true for elk too, unless they're feeding on somebody's alfalfa field or haystack. And so what they come out of winter in condition is dictated by the condition they go into winter. And so what they have to eat in the summer dictates more about it, estrus than how mild the winters are where they're living. Gotcha. So they can they can overcome that hard winter through their their feed and health through, you know, late spring, summer, and then that will get them back to kicking their estrus off at, at at the right time. Right. Because, because their, their condition is September is dictating what is happening. And so they have the ability to overcome anything that happened in winter. Every elk on the landscape in an area that has real winters basically has burnt through all of their energy reserves by the end of, end of winter. And, and they're running on fumes, especially true for deer, but elk too, they're running on fumes by, by April. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. I, I think that that's a great, great conversation. And I'm sure there's little, little side pieces we could pick at there or there for a long time. Um, so during that rut, in your opinion, 
you know, uh, at least in my area up in the mountains, um, you know, the bulls like to hang out together through July, most of August. And then towards the end of August, you know, middle of August, we can start to see these bulls split up and the cows have hung out by themselves with maybe some immature bulls. Um, and you're, is there info or data that supports the bulls going to the cows or the cows going to the bulls is, you know, let's say you're running trail cameras and you've got all these pictures of bulls and they disappear. Um, should I go to the nearest location of cows or, or what, what's going on there during the rut? So, so we, we have about seven years of data on, on this question. We haven't looked at it specifically the way you're asking here, but it appears that when, when bulls lose the velvet, they start heading for traditional um, rutting grounds and the cows do too. Yep. And so they have areas that they meet and it may be very different than where they've spent the whole summer, either of them. If that makes sense. Yeah. I, I would say just in my, my observation, the cows seem to be closer to that rutting area. Cause it, it always seems like my bulls will up and leave, you know, go a mile in a direction, but I know that there was a majority of cows over there. And that's one of the reasons I always like when I'm scouting, not necessarily look for elk, not necessarily look for sign at the time, but like where are the rubs that the rubs were like a great indicator of where they're rutting and where they're going to spend that September. But, um, yeah, if they both move, I could see that, but I've always just assumed that the bulls are going to leave their location to go find the cows, but you're saying that there is some some research or indication that those cows also may leave their area and go to like a neutral spot or a meetup spot. So so the, the cow-calf nursing grounds are often very similar to the rutting grounds, and so you're already going to find cows there often, but cows will move to those grounds as well. Gotcha. That, that, that lines up real well with what I've seen. Um, and, and a lot of people get frustrated with only having cows on their, their cameras and like, well, if you, unless you're looking for specific bulls, like just hang out there. Cause I, I think those bulls will eventually show in that area. They may just be hanging out in a secluded tight basin or, they, or whatnot or non-visible. They may be three, four, 10 miles away. Yep. We, we have some that move. I think we have one bull that I, that I looked at in particular that went 17 miles from like the 20th of August to the 10th of, of September. Yeah, that that's amazing. Um, you know, it does you no good to scout there. And that's why we always recommend scouting is absolutely close to your, your season as possible because things are going to change, you know, in addition to pressure on the, the landscape, you know, elk are just going to move regardless. Absolutely. Um, so in that's, Utah, that's great... our archery season is like August 15th to September 17th. And the bulls that are there, you know, as well as me, you scout them all summer and you go, I'm going to start opening day this canyon. And that's about the time they start losing velvet. And they're, they may be there one or two days. And then every one of them disappears from that canyon you've scouted yep. all summer. Yep. Um, we've got some good, good intel from guys that pay a lot of attention, like in Nevada. You know, they've got such an early season where he saw 50 plus mature bulls within a tight little pocket. And they're there so early that he said, as you see the rut, like wind up by time it was over, there were like two of those 50 bulls were left there or even in adjacent canyons. They just, they all, that was their spot to, to, you know, sit in the velvet and eat the best green grass or whatever they had going. And then instantly, um, the rut starts and they all filtered out of there besides a couple bulls. And so, you know, we got some good data that those things just literally disappear. There's, there's really good biological reasons for that. And it's been studied quite a bit. So cows and bulls have very different selective pressures. Cows 
are generally selecting habitat where they can feed their offspring, but also where their offspring are protected from predators. And bulls don't really worry about predators near as much. So they always go to the absolute best habitat that they can find to put on mass. And, And so because of those two different selective pressures, they're often separated in the summer. We've all seen plenty of gadgets and fads come and go, but here's one product that stood the test of time. Seafoam motor treatment. Lots of hunters and anglers know that seafoam helps engines run better and last longer. It's really simple. When you pour it in your gas tank, seafoam cleans harmful fuel deposits that cause engine problems. I'm talking common stuff like hard starts, rough engine performance, or lost fuel economy. Seafoam is an easy way to prevent or overcome these problems. Just pour a can in your gas tank and let it clean your fuel system. You probably know someone who has used a can of seafoam to get their truck or boat going again. People everywhere rely on seafoam to keep their trucks, boats, and small engines running the way that they should the entire season. Help your engine run better and last longer, pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. Hey, here's a simple but very meaningful gift idea for your mom or grandparent who lives across the country. These are great, dude. These are really nice things to give to people. It's a digital picture frame from Aura. It's perfect for sharing pics of all the things they can't be there for, from family vacations to their grandkids' graduation. Let's say your mom comes out. You take a bunch of pictures of your mom with your kids or whatever. When she goes home, you can greet her at home with all those pictures you just took on the frame. You can also keep her up to date by updating the frame from afar. It's all done online. It's a ton of fun comes with unlimited storage and simple controls on the frame so you can upload as many photos as you want and mom can pick the perfect one. See why it was named the number one digital frame by Wirecutter, The Strategist, and Wired. Right now, you can save on the perfect gift that keeps on giving by visiting AuraFrames.com. That's A-U-R-A Frames.com. Make sure you use the promo code MEATEATER because for a limited time, you can get $20 off their best-selling frame with that code. The code being Meat Eater. AuraFrames.com, promo code Meat Eater. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. At O'Reilly Auto Parts, they offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. Man, I'm always swinging through my uh, local O'Reilly Auto Parts to get stuff ranging from car parts and accessories to boat batteries. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. And if you're a do-it-yourselfer and need a specialty tool to finish the job, stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts and ask about their loaner tool program. Simply pay a refundable deposit and borrow the right tool, then get your deposit back when it's returned. That way you don't have to go buy some you know, super expensive thing that you need like once every five years. Just borrow it and get your refund back. Need your windshield wipers replaced, a brake light fixed, or quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. (laughs) 
I'm going to ask one more question here on just stuff that I want to know about the elk rut and what I've perceived. Um, and, and the question is just which elk runs the herd? Is it, is it the bull, the herd bull, or is it that lead cow or is it dual duty? Because in my opinion, I've seen like dual duty, but I'm going to listen to, to your answer and then maybe, um, throw in some of my experience there. That's a great question. And I don't know the answer. I do know that when they're not together, it's that lead cow, of course. In fact, we yep. have, we have cows, their social structure is pretty fluid, meaning that the, the groups that are living together, you may have these 15 together today and four of them pick up and move over and join this group. And that's what I mean by fluid. They, they, they change who they're with regularly. And we have elk that migrate in the winter and where they migrate to is dictated by the lead cow. So I have, we have cows we've been monitoring for five years and they go to a different place every single winter and it's based on who they're with. And so I, the adult female is very, or the, the matriarch, whoever, the dominant female in the group is the one that drives a lot of it. I'm not sure about males. I think it's got to be a combination because of that matriarchal lineage is so yep. strong. Yeah. And that's, that's what I've seen is it seems like as long as everything is going the way the bull wants it to, and he's not being pestered by satellite cows or he's not being pressured by people, hunters, predators, the lead cow kind of leads the herd back into their bedding area. She kind of leads them out to feed. She's the one that, you know, gets up when it's time to leave bed and come back out to feed. And and all of those, what I would call just, you know, the daily decisions that that herd is making and what they're going through with. Now, where I see the bull, there have been times where, you know, he rounds his cows up and pushes them. You know, he gets forceful, he uses, you know, horns, he uses his stature, whatever he needs to. And he will at times force that herd to go where he wants them to, whether it's to escape danger, get them away from other bulls, whatever it may be. Um, I've also seen like the bull push the cows off so that he can come back and um, either check out a bull or confront a, a, a bull that's pestering him. So I feel like it's a dual relationship, but I think if we weren't to interject and if we weren't to spook the bull or predators weren't, um, the lead cow is going to do the majority of the leading in that herd, even during the rut um, until that bull feels pestered enough, or there's a reason enough. He wants to move those cows. He physically does. Uh, so, um, so I think that's, that's generally true. That's supported by, I mean, nobody's really looked at who's driving it that I know of anyway, nobody's really looked at who's driving their movement or their behavior during the rut, but during the rest of the year, it's the lead cow. And I just, I find it hard to think that that's how it goes for, 47 months of the year and then five months of the year uh, a, a bull comes in and takes over ultimately ultimately the cow chooses to be with the bull or to let the bull there i mean yeah she's the final choice whether she's going to mate with that bull or not he may be the dominant bull and not let any other bulls but she only has to take one step if she doesn't want to make mate with him yep yep um no, that, that just some general questions about the elk rut, kind of what I've thought. And so now we're going to run into rut timing, which is I botched the, the gestational period there in the last time. Now we're really talking about rut timing and when things start to get going. And a lot of it may be perceived. There may be um, people thinking the rut's going cranking at the end of August when we all know that's not happening, but they're hearing beagles. So they just perceive that the rut's you know, going at that time. So um, in my opinion... Uh, it's based on photo period, but I'm going to let you kind of jump in and, and 
Um, and you kind of already answered this, I guess, above when we're talking about you know getting that cap on the ground at the optimal time um, and then going backwards based on gestation from that. But in your opinion, is that kicked off by photo period, which we, you know, I think is a general consensus, which lets them know that they're 250 days, you know, ahead, like that's their, their, their clock or what other factors affect um, kicking off the rut? So how it works, Jason is, is the, the evolutionary selective pressure. If the female gives birth at the right time of year, she's more likely to have an offspring survive. And if a female gives birth at the wrong time of year, she's less likely. And so if the successful female continues to be successful, pretty soon that timing becomes the main timing because she's had all the calves and the ones that other times haven't. That's what drives that partrition timing. And that's what drives the timing of the rut. So it is, but, but, they don't they don't say oh i i need to give birth on june 1st so i'm going to count back 250 days of course they don't do that yep so they've tied it to what's called a zeitgeber that's z e i t g e b e r which is a german word that means timekeeper and all animals you and i have an internal clock uh you're younger than me but i wake up every morning at like 5 minutes after 6 and that's an internal clock in me. And that internal clock in animal in mammals is regulated in general. The primary thing it's regulated by is photo period. Um, the, the Zeitgeber or the timekeeper or the clock setter is photo period. It can be resources. It can be uh, a few other things, but the primary thing in mammals is photo period. And so that is what the brain is using to tell a bull elk when his testosterone levels should increase. And when his testosterone levels increase, that's when his antlers harden and he sheds the velvet. And that's when he starts into um, his testes enlarge and he starts searching for potential mates. And so, yeah, it absolutely can happen at the end of August that he starts searching for potential mates when there's none available. Gotcha. And then um, to wind it back a little bit, we talked about cows and their health affecting that. Are the cows, they know by based on, um, I'm not going to even try to re-say the word you did that sound like lightsaber. But, you know, um, Let's go with lightsaber. <laughs> there you go. There you go. The, they're the, the, the elk's lightsaber. Um, so if you were to, to look at that, they know they need to, to, you know, based on that, which is a lot to do with photo period um, and, and the light that they're getting, they know they need to try to be, you know, 240 to 250 days ahead, but then their health also affects that. So, right. So it, it, it's a little bit of a balance. Like they know they need to, to, to come in now, but it may take five, 10, 15, 20 days based on them getting their health to a certain point. So they're just constantly trying to, their body's telling them to, but they just can't. Is so, that how that works? So yes, yes and no. So they don't ever make a conscious decision. Evolution has dictated that when days are this long, that's the optimal time to, to go into estrus. And so, or actually when nights are this long, uninterrupted darkness is what really regulates it. So when nights are this long, that's what the optimal time to go into estrus. But if, if a female carried a calf the whole summer or she nursed a calf the whole summer, she's still trying to recover. And so she may be delayed 
if she was successful in raising a calf. Same thing if you're living in a marginal habitat and you had a really severe winter and you had a calf, you're going to be delayed a little bit. If you're older, you're always in poor condition. You may be delayed a little bit. So evolution has dictated the optimal, but there's a lot of other forces pushing them off the optimal. Gotcha. That makes, that makes a lot of sense there. Um, in your opinion, and, and I know we see it a, a lot more um, drastic in, in the deer population, but is the rut timing, based, you know, we've already talked about it being based on photo period, it, which does that coordinate directly with latitude or does latitude itself have anything to do with that aside from the, the days being shorter or longer than, you know, a different latitude? Sure. We, we, we don't have a strong analysis on the effect of latitude for elk, although we've just developed a mathematical model where we can look at timing of parturition based on movement patterns. And so we can look at that, but definitely in deer, uh, there is a strong latitudinal effect. So you would expect it to be similar in elk as well. And that is as you go North, the, the rut becomes earlier, which is a little counterintuitive maybe for some people. Um, Yeah. And, and I mean, it's very noticeable in deer, you know, I was down in, in Mexico coos deer hunting this year in the end of January and, and the coos deer were, you know, going crazy down there still, you know, or like the Arizona over the counter archery tag, you know, mule deer rutting into December through the middle of January and our ruts, you know, two months gone. Um, right. But it doesn't, it seems like I can go down to New Mexico and elk hunt and the ruts the same same, you know, about the same spot as they are up here in Washington, maybe a few days either way. But I was, I've always been curious if there's anything that supports um, that latitude difference like it does on the deer side. So, yeah, I don't know. Have me back next year and I should be able to answer that question more completely. Even in Utah, from northern part of the state to the southern part of the state, there's a full two weeks difference in deer. Yep. Uh, with the northern part of the state, Peak parturition is about June 5th for deer. And in the southern part of the state, it's like June 23rd, June 22nd. So you backdate from that. And so that, I mean, that's, that's a huge difference latitudinal. I would expect there's some of that in elk, um, but I don't know for sure. Yeah. Um, To wrap up rut timing, are there any other factors that are, um, you know, that correlate high enough that that, that's worth talking about? Or is it really just based on on that photo period and and the length of the night? No, I think the the one factor that that we haven't touched on maybe enough, we have a pretty popular unit in Utah. It's called the Book Cliffs. It's a really, it's a limited entry deer unit and it's a limited entry elk unit. And it's what I would call summer range limited habitat and get in in effect it's marginal habitat there's just not a lot of summer range for elk and in dry years elk are in relatively poor condition and only in the best of best years are they in good condition but the cool thing if if the herd in general is in poor condition the rut will be much more spread out and if the herd is in really good condition the rut will be much more punctuated. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. So the, the, the elk don't have to spread out to find resources and find food and, you know, and spread out the cows. They're, they're, they're all able to kind of be in that prime, 
prime well, area that but that I, has, think, I think it's because they're all in good enough condition to come into estrus at the optimal date whereas in poor condition they're just they're just straggling in getting to that critical condition they need to go into estrus and so uh let me give you an example uh one year we had 40 40 bursts that we were monitoring and all 40 of those bursts occurred i believe between May 25th and like June 29th. And the next year burst started on May 15th and they all, they went all the way into the middle of July. They were spread out over two full months and, and they, they were in really bad condition the previous rut season. And so I just think that it can be spread out a lot more in herds that are old or in herds that are living in marginal habitat. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Um, not that I would necessarily apply for units around that, that idea, but it, it's, it's great to note that it does exist. And, you know, um, you know, if you, if you had an October season that went into some of these marginal units, you may still hit the rut, you know, I wouldn't say in the peak, but more in the height versus if you were in a, a unit that has great summer habitat, the rut is over earlier. And now, th- now that we're talking about this, really nobody ever believes me when I talk about Southwest Washington, um, we set our muzzleloader season on the first Saturday of October. Our rut is, you can literally slam the door on our rut for the most part by the end of like the end of September, 1st of October. And it's because we are in a rainforest, right? These elk don't migrate. They're local herds. They've got all the food in the world with clear cuts and all the greenage around here. But yet I, I firmly believe our rut is dang near over on October 1st versus you go up in the mountains or if I go, I'm like, man, the rut goes so much longer out of state, you know, and these other units are up in the mountains. And, and so that really correlates with what I've seen on the ground versus what I've seen in my backyard. That, that's interesting. That's, I mean, I, I deer hunt usually the third week of October and the rut is regularly still going at least yep. stragglers in, in our yep. mountains of Utah. Yep. Yeah. I mean, I called a bull, my, my wife's first bull I called in on October 29th, um, called it in and, and but it was in the mountains, you know, central mountain, the, the East slope of, of the, the Cascade mountains. And it's just different unit, different area, bigger herds, um, a migratory unit that has to live on feed grounds, you know, in the winter versus our elk here have always just been done. So that, that's, uh, I, that makes sense on maybe why that correlates. So I can't remember if we're going to talk about it, but are we going to talk about pregnancy rates, which would drive how strong the rut is? Yeah, we were going to talk a little bit. I know I have a, a note coming on on perceived strength of the rut and okay. then the cows coming into estrus, you know, sometimes only 50% of them. So we'll get into that. Um, yeah. Yeah. In just a little bit. But the as a matter of fact, the only question I have in between those two, I wanted to ask about, um, you know, one of the perceived things is we're out there hunting. We've had a couple of good high pressure days in a row. Ruts really going good. It seems to be getting better and better. And then you get a rain squall come in and uh, it shuts the, the rut down or, or that's what's perceived. The rut, the activity seems to be different, whether it's, you know, hunters get lazier, they're not working as hard. Um, in your opinion, or or I, when I say your opinion, is there data that supports or research that supports um, whether and how it affects the rut? So not that I know of. Uh, again, that's a question that we're asking right now. Absolutely, weather is going to affect activity patterns. I would say in my hunting experience, it's exactly the opposite. The worse the weather, the more it's going. Really? And so, um, yeah, if the weather, 
maybe because it's so warm here and the elk are just overheated on, a, on during the rut. September super hot still. They if it's a hot day by early morning they're back in the dark timber on the north slopes and they're bedded down. But if it starts snowing, they're active all day long. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Um, I was told by an old timer that that I used to hunt with or, or hung around and, and got some tips and tricks from. He believed that the rain washes away all the scent that's on the ground. Um, I don't know if I believe that or not, but it was one of those things where it's like you kind of scratch your head. Is that true? You know, if, if cows are you know close or they're peeing, you know, all over the landscape. Does that get that bull fired up, and so he's bugling more as he travels around, or not? I I don't know. I've I just kind of put that in there as far as the weather affecting the rut and potentially supports what I've seen. Um, but but it sounds like you've seen the opposite, so it's it's not necessarily uh, maybe a factor. So yeah, definitely olfactory is the way that elk communicate and tell each other that I'm I'm approaching estrus or I'm in estrus or I just ovulated. That's how. That's how they're communicating with each other. So anything that that changes the amount of olfactory communication on the landscape is going to change behavior. Having said that, they have a pretty keen sense of smell. And and I'm not, once the rut's going, I'm not sure that they're using scent marking as much as before the rut. Uh, I think that they've started to gather up their animals and they're checking their animals regularly. They have a Fleming behavior like bison where they, it's called a lip curl, where they they can open up a whole bunch of receptors, olfactory receptors in their nose, and they can tell whether that female is, is approaching estrus or not, but they check them individually by then. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Where you see that bull get up and go nudge every cow out of her bed, check her, scent check her, and then move on to the right. next one. Yep. So that's part one of our podcast here with Brock McMillan on elk. Stay tuned for part two coming at you next time on Cutting the Distance. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. Simply pour a can in your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. Pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. Hey guys, it's Steve on my phone in Hawaii, where it happens to be turkey season. And it is right now turkey week here at Meat Eater, which means tons of great turkey hunting content, a lot of great offers on turkey gear at TheMeatEater.com, and even a calling contest where I am getting my ass thoroughly kicked. Go find it all at TheMeatEater.com.